Hey everyone, welcome back for our final audio recording podcast for our course together. This is going to be chapter 14, looking at family systems therapies. Your textbook does include chapter 15, which is a very brief overlook at integration. Since we've been talking about integration throughout our course, I did not feel the need to force you to listen to my voice a bit longer with another lecture. So chapter 14 is going to do it for us with our asynchronous audio. Before we jump into this final chapter, let's take a moment to pause and gather ourselves and then we'll jump in together. By now you're very familiar with what we do as we settle and gather ourselves. Find a stabilizing grounding posture that is safe and appropriate for you today. Consider planting your feet firmly on the floor and elongating your spine as much as you can. Now draw your awareness down to the soles of your feet, acknowledging and honoring all that your feet do for you and all that they carry. You might scrunch up your toes, hold for five seconds, or you may choose to roll the bottoms of your foot across the floor. Let's send that awareness up through our ankles, through our knees, now to the sit bones of our body. Non-judgmentally noticing the sensation of sitting or whatever posture you find yourself in. As we move our awareness now up through our spine, perhaps elongating, allowing more breath, and taking a deep breath along the way. Allow your awareness to settle around your heart space. Focusing first on your physical heart space, noticing your natural rhythms. If your breath is rapid and shallow, if it feels forced, or if it's deep and intentional. Shifting our focus now to our emotional heart space, gently noticing what feelings are coming up for you in this moment. Not judging them, just gently noticing. And offering some acceptance of whatever emotion is present for you today. Perhaps in this moment, you may want to have your hands with your palms facing upward as a sign of openness. Perhaps also as a sign of willingness to let go and relinquish the to-do lists, the places you have to be, the places you just came from, and all the other demands that are asked of you. Releasing those and allowing yourself to be fully present in this moment. Prioritizing your education and setting the foundation for your future career. So you continue to take slow, intentional breaths. Start walking back into that physical space that you occupy so we can jump into our last chapter together, Family Systems Therapy. All right, folks, 
Here we are with our last chapter, and it's one of the most complex, which is why it was saved for the end. Whenever we're working with a family, we're working with multiple people, usually somewhere between two up to eight to ten members of a family in the room with you at one time. There are multiple beliefs, multiple value sets, different moral understandings, and every story that the family has gone through together, there are different versions of that story living and breathing in each person that's present. Multiple narratives about each story. You'll hear a term, it's called the identified patient. So in every family system, there is the one person that seems to be the problem, the problem child or the alcoholic or the addict. And the family tends to blame this person for all of their problems. We all have a really rough time around the holidays because Johnny's alcoholism just continues to get in the way. Or our family really struggles. We can't even go on a vacation because little Susie just loses her mind every time we try to get the car and go somewhere. Well, the truth is that the identified patient, oftentimes you'll hear it abbreviated as the IP, they're just another symptom of something that's going on in the family system. Every time that we are working with somebody, whether it's an individual or in a family setting, they bring their entire family with them into the room, whether physically or metaphorically. All of those people, all of those stories come with us wherever we go. And they're alive and breathing, just like our own stories and our own understandings of them. So we always carry that family with us. So don't think that just because you're treating an individual means you can forget all of this family stuff. Because family is like a pond. Anytime there is any disturbance in the pond, those ripples will make it all the way to the other edge of the pond. Even if it was just a small leaf or a small rock that fell near one edge, that ripple will continue all the way to the other edge of the pond. So a parent may struggle with something, a sibling may struggle with something, or something happens in the family system. Everybody is impacted by it. And this is where a lot of times you'll have an individual who comes in because they're experiencing probably one of the two classics, depression or anxiety, or more often than not these days, both. And all of a sudden they start talking about their family and their parents. And they say something like, I have no idea why I'm even bringing them up. They have nothing to do with any of the things I'm struggling with. Well, actually, they have a lot to do with the things you're struggling with. And they're impacted by the things that you're struggling with. So two ideas to keep in mind as we start this conversation. One, the identified patient is usually not the actual problem in the family. They are a symptom or they can serve as a good clue as to what might be going on in the system that's causing this unrest or this state of dis-ease. And two, is that whether we're actually physically with our families or not, we carry all of that with us all the time. And we are impacted by their stories just as they are impacted by ours. So to briefly recap, individuals are best understood through assessing the interactions between the family members. 
And we know that the way you interact with one person in your family might be different than the way you interact with another person. And even still in those different interactions, we can see patterns. Or if the interactions are so wildly different from each other, that gives us room for our curiosity to come in. Why is it so different? But individuals are best understood in the family context. And that's because the family is an interactional unit. There's give and take, or at least there should be give and take. That would be a healthy family. Where we see dysfunction is when it's a lot of give or a lot of take, a lot of confusion, a lot of numbness. We'll get into that. As we stated, an action by an individual will influence all members of that family. And this systems orientation broadens the traditional emphasis on individual internal dynamics. So we started way back at the beginning with Sigmund Freud, and it was all about the self, me, 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 and how things have affected me, and how I'm behaving, and how I'm thinking, and I'm feeling. Well, remember his pal, Alfred Adler, who eventually broke off and started his own psychodynamic thing, now known as Adlerian therapy. Well, he's still one of our big names here in family systems, and this was one of the novel things he introduced to the world of psychotherapy, you'll remember, is that it wasn't just about the self. It was about family, too, and also community. Symptoms in the family context are viewed as an expression of a dysfunction within a family. Symptoms are always clues. They're always room for us to be curious about why. So this is the communication style that you use. Why is that? And for all people, but especially in the family system, these problematic behaviors or things that we might call symptoms, they serve a purpose. Whether they were intentionally selected or not, they're actually very intentional in the fact that they are maintained and upkept within that family system. This may not be a conscious choice, per se, that people are making, but there is that intentional effort, perhaps subconsciously, that this helps maintain the status quo, or this helps us keep up appearances, or this helps keep a sense of stability in this dysfunctional family system. So these problematic behaviors serve a purpose, they're unintentionally maintained, and the function of the family's inability to cooperate productively is very evident through these problematic behaviors. Again, this is a great spot for that clinical curiosity to really grow. And what's important to keep in mind is that symptoms of dysfunctional patterns are handed down across generations. It's rare that all of a sudden this new dysfunctional behavior magically appears in a family. Oftentimes, these behaviors are learned from generations before. Um, We see this, um, especially with alcoholism and addiction. You'll hear me use this as an example a lot for family systems, that there tends to be a pattern in families. Perhaps it skipped a generation, so to speak. Um, But if you look back in the family genealogy, that you would see that there is a history of alcoholism. And if we were able to see how the family managed that person or those people's alcoholism in that particular nuclear family, being the immediate family, we would probably see a lot of similarity in that family and this one. And as a note here, something I like to point out is that we really focus, especially in the world of psychological research, 
We focus on how trauma is handed down through the generations. We inherit our grandparents, our parents, our ancestors' traumas. And this is true. We have a lot of evidence around this. Something that is equally true and often not stated is that we also inherit their resiliency and their strength. So while we inherit some of these negative aspects we wish we didn't have, we also inherit the positive. That's something for us to keep in mind as human beings in this world, and it's something for us to offer into the clinical therapeutic space as practitioners, because people don't hear this, and they especially don't hear it from folks like us, who tend to be very problem-focused. So let's back it up a little bit and talk about all of these individuals who have created these different approaches to family systems work. We identified that the original family systems guy, we could say, um, is Alfred Adler. And his idea of adolescent focused therapy was based on an educational model that emphasized family atmosphere and something that will sound familiar to you, the family constellation the important events and members of the family that are relevant to that client. So as a reminder with the Adlerian perspective that we are collaborators who essentially seek to join the family. That's an interesting idea. The parent interviews yield hunches about the purposes underlying the children's misbehavior. So you can see some value judgments already creeping in here. The children's misbehavior. And we're looking for the parents' hunches, their ideas and clues about what might be causing the children's misbehavior. Could it perhaps be the parents? Or would that be a little too close to old buddy Freud? Maybe Adler wouldn't get too close to that. Another major uh, theorist in the family systems world is Murray Bowen. Uh, So his theoretical and clinical model evolved from those psychoanalytic principles and practices, and he viewed the family as an emotional unit. And those unresolved emotional reactions to our family must be addressed if we hope to achieve a mature and unique personality. Because what happens if we don't address the things that have happened in our family? We experience anxiety and depression. Depression is a very numbing type of um, mental illness. We don't have a lot of emotional experience, which can stifle our uniqueness and our creativity. Bowen also had these ideas of differentiation of the self, which is honestly kind of exactly what it sounds like, a psychological separation from others. So I am differentiating, separating, differencing myself from the family unit. And this major principle of Bowen's um, to hold on to as you continue your studies is triangulation. This is where a third party is recruited to reduce anxiety and stabilize a couple's relationship. We'll see much more of this in our family systems work. When we're dealing with multi-family, multi-generational families, um, here are some treatment goals that we might be looking towards. To change the individuals within the context of the system. To end generation-to-generation transmission of problems by resolving emotional attachments. To lessen anxiety and relieve symptoms. 
and to increase the individual member's level of differentiation. This is similar to Bowen and often described as one of the greats in family systems therapy is a woman by the name of Virginia Satir. And your book gives a little bio blurb about her, but they don't talk about her contributions to the, the uh, to the theory very much. And there's different names to her theory. It gets a little bit confusing. So I'll share with you what I have from my um, board study materials. So Virginia Satir developed a conjoint family therapy process known as the Human Validation Process Model. It's an example of experiential family therapy, and it views maladaptive behavior as the result of the interchange of low self-esteem, incongruent communication, poor systems operations, and faulty family roles. The primary goal of therapy is to enhance the growth potential of family members by raising their self-esteem and helping them to communicate congruently and solve problems more effectively. The therapy process can be described in terms of six stages, which we will not get into depth with. You will do so in your family therapy class. Status quo, introduction of a foreign element, chaos, integration of new possibilities, practice, and new status quo. To summarize it, figuring out what you're working with, shaking things up and changing things around, which would be described as chaos, see what new possibilities arise out of that, and move forward with this new set of family rules and functions together, the new status quo. Virginia Satir considered the therapist's use of the self to be the key instrument of change and described the therapist as having multiple roles, including role model, facilitator, mediator, advocate, and teacher. She had a unique intervention that she would use called sculpting and family reconstructions. Oftentimes when we have families, um, even if it's primarily adults, perhaps they have adult children who are involved, and especially with younger children, we'll use drawing assessments. Draw a picture of your family um, or the kinetic drawing assessment. Um, It's known as the one where everyone's doing something. So draw a picture of your family where everyone is actively doing something. So we're not all just standing outside in a garden. We're all doing something. This can give you clues about what's happening in the family. Virginia Satir took this in a very literal kind of way of sculpting, of having the family members get up and move around the room and actually reenact things um, and use their bodies to help tell the story. Her emphasis was predominantly on nurturing relationships, whereas Bowen saw triangulated relationships as a symptom or a sign of something negative or maladaptive within the family. Virginia Satir saw a possibility to have a nurturing, strong attachment-based triangle between three members of a family. And this shouldn't be all that radical because that could possibly be two parents and their child. And Bowen didn't quite see things that way. So Satir offers a lot of strength-based work in family systems. Um, A lot of the family systems approaches tend to be very 
uh, hyper-focused on objectivity, focusing on the dynamics and focusing on the structure or the system itself as this kind of functioning unit. And Virginia Satir brought back in emotions and attachment. So that's why she's one of the big names in family therapy and this major contribution that she offered. Some key concepts from Satir's work. Again, you may hear it as the human validation process model. You may also hear it referred to as the experiential communications uh, because there is such that focus on using communication to build healthy attachments and using sculpting in the room um, to work through some of these family dynamics. But some key concepts of Satir's work include incongruent communication, which results in that poor self-esteem. So keys would be to express feelings, having the inside experience be congruent with what is expressed outwardly, and that will move the family into a healthier process. Our goals include getting the focus off of the IP, the identified patient, and to improve communications. We're going to do that through communication games and exercises like family sculpting. And as a little insider tip, as you will eventually take the licensing exam, you may see family sculpting show up in VBS study materials as using spatial metaphors. Whatever they can do to throw us off, they're going to do it. But you can see where that might make some sense of using spatial metaphors um, as a term to replace family sculpting, because that's what we're really doing. We're using the physical space and our physical bodies to uh, show what's happening in the family. So it is a spatial metaphor. The role of the therapist is to be very empathic, encouraging expression of feelings, um, satir therapists do self-disclose and they can use their self in relation. They tend to be very joining with the family in this work. And very structured activity is utilized in sessions. So we're keeping a structure for the family to work with um, to allow them to express themselves in a safe and healthy way. So that work of Murray Bowen is the multi-generational approach to family therapy. Let's look now at structural strategic family therapy. Your book rather lumps these together. Uh, the Board of Behavioral Sciences does make a distinction between these two. So let's cover all of our bases here. Structural family therapy was created by Salvador Minuchin, and it's an approach that focuses on the family's interactions to understand the structure or the organization of the family. Now, most families very much have a type of hierarchy where the parents are the authority power figures and the children answer to the parents. That's the most simple version, right? Perhaps the parents answer to the grandparents and this can go so far, uh, go forward and extend out um, aunts and uncles and cousins and that really close friend of the family who's basically part of the family. There's a structure and there's an intentional but probably subconscious structure to this family uh, organization. So in structural therapy, symptoms are viewed to be a byproduct of structural failings. 
Think of it as like a, a building. There's a structural failing somewhere, so now the integrity, the safety of the building is compromised. According to Structural Family Therapy from Mnuchin, families are the same way. When there's an issue with the structure, the whole unit is compromised. Additionally, structural changes must occur in a family before an individual's symptoms can be reduced. So let's say there is that, we'll call it an older brother who's struggling with addiction, and they're the identified patient, the IP in the family. Well, structural family therapy would say that there's an issue with the structure in this family. That's what we need to address in order for brother's symptoms to improve. It's not just brother and his problems. There's a bigger structural issue with this unit. And that's where our focus is going to be. Our aim is to reduce the symptoms of dysfunction and bring about structural change through doing the following things. Modifying the family's transactional rules. Bringing about structural change within the system by modifying the rules. And establishing appropriate boundaries. Some key words that you can apply to structural strategic family therapy include joining, boundary setting, unbalancing, reframing, ordeals, paradoxical interventions, and enactments. And we'll talk a little more about paradoxical interventions because they can be dicey. But here's some thoughts on structural strategic strategic family therapy. If you divided your family of origin into subsystems, who would be in the parental subsystem? The spousal subsystem? The sibling subsystem? Did the parental subsystem and the spousal subsystem contain the same people or different people at different times? The same can be asked of the sibling subsystem. If you have step-siblings or half-siblings, when were they present? When were they absent? What was going on during those times? Even just looking at the structure of a family invites that clinical curiosity that can give us a lot of room to work. We want to know about what rules and boundaries are set, what rules and boundaries are known and acknowledged by the family, and which are pretty subconscious. Were boundaries ever crossed? What happened when there was a boundary crossing? What were common interactional sequences in your family? What were routines that made up your early life and rules that governed those routines? There are so many questions we can ask and that we want to ask as structural, strategic family therapists. And as I've said, and I'll remind you throughout this work, that you will have a class exclusively dedicated to family systems work. So this is an overview, your little sample platter at the restaurant, and you will get to have the main course of diving into each of these. You'll basically get the full ingredients list and recipes for all of these things in that family systems course. Strategic family therapy is attributed to the work of Jay Haley, who developed this approach And it's often used in combination with structural family therapy. And that's because Jay and Mnuchin shared similarities in goals and in the process. So that's why you hear this referred to as structural strategic family therapy in your textbook. And we'll probably hear it um, referred to in that joint fashion in the real clinical world. 
Again, the Board of Behavioral Sciences decides to do whatever it wants to do, so it separates them pretty rigidly. But you do hear these in conjunction with each other quite often. So the interventions generated become synonymous with the systems approach. And it's all of those key terms that we touched on. Um, joining, boundary setting, unbalancing, reframing, ordeals, paradoxical interventions, and enactments. And I'm sure you're dying to know, what are those paradoxical interventions that you had some feelings about, Brittany? Well, this is where family systems therapy can get really tricky. And you actually have to modify your consent for informed um, consent, that document we talked about several weeks ago. You actually have to modify that legal document if you're going to use um, paradoxical interventions because you are basically telling your clients to do the opposite of what you really want them to do. So some treatment goals in strategic family therapy include resolving presenting problems by focusing on behavioral sequences. So that's where prescribing the system or symptom, excuse me, prescribing the symptom can bring up those behavioral sequences so we can focus on them. You want to get people to behave differently, shake things up and see what happens. You have to be mindful, though, that sometimes when you shake things up, it was actually a bottle of Coke with a Mentos tab in it. So when you open it, it's going to explode. This is where you have to be very mindful and very skillful as a family systems practitioner, especially if you're using a very um, heavily strategic approach. But we also want to shift the family organization so that the presenting problem is no longer functional. The problem is serving the family in some way for a reason, and it probably has for generations and decades back and back and back. So we want to shift the way the family is organized so that this is no longer a functional solution. We need to do something else, hopefully something healthier, maybe actually communicating with each other. Wouldn't that be great? And our goal is also to move the family towards the appropriate stage of family development. In recent times, feminism, multiculturalism, and the postmodern social constructionism schools of thought have entered the family therapy field. And truthfully, how could they not? So many families that come into our offices for support are oftentimes coming in because someone in their family is experiencing some gender dysphoria or some changes in their identity, and they don't know how to cope. Or they're coming in asking us to fix that family member, which turns into us talking to this person about what's going on. Sounds like this is a big shift for you. Sounds like this is a big shift for your family. This is a new thing. How do we handle change? How does your family usually handle change? Aha, there's our key in. So these different, as the world is changing and as we are becoming more accepting and in some places we're still working on tolerance of different um, identities um, recognizing that these identities have been present for ages and this isn't a novel trendy thing that people have decided upon um, identities around sexuality and gender ability disability and race ethnicity all of these things have been here um, we're just doing a better job of providing general public education about it so we can actually have a conversation. 
And the family therapy office tends to be a place where intersectionality really shows up. And thankfully, um, these approaches are really conducive to working with um, these different things. Remember that some of our older, kind of more archaic approaches to therapy, we had to really work to like shove them in. (laughs) Um, But the family therapy space, because it's so welcoming of multiple narratives to one story, it really is a good space for um, intersectionality to come in. The family systems models are more collaborative. They're treating clients, such as individuals, couples, or families, as experts in their own lives. That can be hard to do with a couple or a family, especially when, again, multiple narratives to one story. Which one's the right one? Honestly, neither one is the right one. The expression that the truth is somewhere in the middle very much rings true. And then we have to really catch ourselves if we start aligning with one story or one narrative too much in a couple or a family system. As always, we need to stay vigilant about the macro systems in which we are embedded. We carry those with us as practitioners and families carry those with them on the system and individual level as well. This also entails being mindful about the appearance of macro systems we may carry with us. If you appear to be from the dominant culture and you are working with a family who is not, there's things to be mindful about in that regard. And this was a question posed by Carl Rogers. What level of expertise is appropriate for the therapist to take? Should we be the expert or should we allow the client, the family to be the expert? What expertise does the therapist have in relation to the family and how should that expertise be used? And I would consider adding when. There are times where joining is our best intervention and times where being an expert is our best intervention. How directive should therapists be in relation to families and what does that say about the uses of power in therapy? And the concept of power, especially when working with families, can be very interesting If we overexert our power, we may see the system respond to that. Perhaps the family becomes very protective of itself, um, becoming very protective of other members of the family. Or sometimes when we exert some power, a family member will identify that's where the power is. I'm going to align with the therapist and disown my family. Always seeking that advantageous relationship. So being mindful of this, especially in a systems context. Family therapy is a very assessment-heavy approach because we have a lot we need to figure out when we're working with multiple narratives within the same story. So we often use genograms for conducting an assessment, which enables the family structure to be identified in a clear manner. And there is a, it's almost like its own language, of different symbols and different lines connecting various people. It's a very formalized, rigid approach um, to information gathering, and it's incredibly beneficial. I start many of my sessions, whether they are family or individual, with a genogram because I do family work even with an individual. I'm basically working with the metaphorical family 
that my client brings with them. So I like to get an idea of who's in the room with us. And your book shows you some of the different symbols that are used to conduct a genogram. Murray Bowen um, uh, would always go back three generations. So that can take two full sessions to go back three generations just to complete the genogram. This is where some folks may opt for one or two generations or maybe just kind of a family constellation um, in the sake of time. So practitioners may use circular or relational questioning to get at the systemic issues presented in the family story that will provide meaning for the therapist and the family. To hypothesize is to form a set of ideas about people, systems, and situations that focus meaning in a useful way, and it flows from the ideas and understandings generated in the assessment process. Two questions are typically used in the form of hypothesizing one chooses to do. One is how much faith do the therapist and family have in the ideas they generate? And two, how much of an influence is the therapist willing to be in the lives of people and families? So we can't avoid influencing the family and its members. Otherwise, what's the point of seeing a therapist for assistance with family system concerns? But the kind of influence the therapist brings to the session is something that we may have some say in. Satir and Bitter suggest that family therapists cannot be in charge of the people. They need to be in charge of the process. They own responsibility for how the therapy is conducted. Feminists and social constructionists are the most expressive of their concerns about the misuse of power in therapy. And they are joined by the multiculturalists, the person-centered therapists, Adlerians, and existentialists who have also witnessed and the often imposed dominant culture in therapy. We can offer insights and we can ask questions such as, I wonder if this is true, or this could be true. Um, Sometimes I'll say things like, let me know what you think about this idea. If we're trying to understand something about the family system, let me know what you think about this idea, Susie. I wonder if your mom and her sister are so close because they also had a tough childhood growing up. So even though they don't talk to you a whole lot and you don't really feel connected to them, maybe they kind of understand what you're going through. What do you think about that? So instead of saying, well, Susie, this is what I think, I'm allowing room for her to contest, for her to have her own thoughts and ideas, and I then need to be willing to... Droikers is credited with developing the process that is well-designed for collaborative work. He would use a passionate interest and curiosity to ask questions and gather information, Uh, on the subjective perspectives of family members, honoring the ideas that individuals brought to their joint understanding. He would ask questions like, could it be that? Or, I have an idea I would like to share with you. Would you be willing to hear it? These are important questions, important approaches to take, whether we're working with systems or individuals, because sometimes you'll say, can I share this idea with you? And the client will say, no. I'm not ready to hear it. 
I'm just venting today. I am pre-contemplative when it comes to change. So I don't want to hear your insights. I want you to listen to me. And there's some validity to that. And it gives us some information about where the client is, right? Everything is something. But offering things in a collaborative, allowing allowing for there to be room for the client to contest what we're saying. Not everything that comes out of our mouths is beautiful therapeutic gold. Sometimes we stumble on our words or we ask a question that's totally off. And I think it's important for our clients to be able to say, no, I think you're kind of off about that. I actually would say it this way or I see it this way. This is what seems true to me. Facilitating change is what happens when family therapy is viewed as a joint or collaborative process. For therapists who are concerned with making change happen, techniques are more important to model that see the therapists as an expert, whereas collaborative approaches require planning. Planning can still include what family therapy has called techniques or interventions, but with the family's participation. Two of the most common forms for facilitation of change are enactments and assignment of tasks. So reenacting things and giving homework. Both of these processes work best when the family co-constructs them with the therapist or at least accepts the rationale for their use. Possible outcomes are only limited by the resources available internally and externally to the family in facilitating change. Now, from a diversity perspective, there are many strengths of the family systems approaches at large. There are many ethnic and cultural groups that place great value on the extended family. And while many of our Approaches we've learned about this semester are very individualistically focused. This is more novel in that it opens up the dialogue to include not only family that is physically in the room, but family that is, as we've said, metaphorically or spiritually in the room. Perhaps they just aren't there or perhaps they are no longer living, but we still carry those individuals with us as part of our family system. Monica McGoldrick is credited with being the most influential leader in the development of gender and cultural perspectives and frameworks in family practice. In the individual culture of the family, the larger cultures to which the family members belong, and host culture that dominates the family's life are all explored. There is so much room in family therapy to explore all of these different themes, which again is a blessing and sometimes a little bit of a curse when you're trying to figure out where to focus for the time being. Family therapy does have shortcomings from a diversity perspective. The process of differentiation occurs in most cultures, but it takes on a different shape due to cultural norms. The degree to which someone is willing to differentiate from their family, um, it can vary. And it can vary throughout treatment, not just person by person or family by family or culture by culture, but that one person can change their mind rapidly throughout treatment. And it's important for us to be aware of that and to be aware that enmeshment, which is the term that describes a relationship where the boundaries are unclear. This can be sometimes more colloquially described as a mama's boy. Um, Someone who, in a relationship with, in this case, their maternal parent, 
Um, they're very, very, very close, very dependent on each other. And it's a little bit unclear where those parent-child boundaries are. The term enmeshment is often used with that negative connotation. But in some cultures, enmeshment is not only the expectation, but it's a sign of a healthy family. And if you really look at that family system, taking out our cultural expectations of differentiation and individuation, is that family healthy? Oftentimes, yes. So enmeshment is this thing to be constantly aware of. And when we feel ourselves thinking, oh, they seem really enmeshed. I don't know if that's the healthiest thing. Allow that to be a real question. I don't know if that's the healthiest thing. Maybe it is. I need to do more exploring to see. Some other shortcomings from the diversity perspective are that some practitioners may erroneously assume Western models of family are universal. Enmeshment's a great example of that. Some family therapists focus primarily on the nuclear family, that's your immediate family, like your parents and your siblings, which is based on Western notions. For many people, the nuclear family includes your grandparents who live in the home with you. Sharing a bed with a parent well into your teenage or young adult years may not be abnormal where you're from. And we oftentimes bring in our Western notions and ideals without realizing it and think to ourselves, ooh, that's super unhealthy. They need to have their own beds. They should have their own rooms. What if that's not only not an option, but not what they want? There's room to explore. Some contributions of family systems approaches are that in most systemic approaches, neither the individual nor the family is blamed for a particular dysfunction. Again, this is in the approach that we take, not that the therapist or the family is bringing to therapy. Remember, they're bringing in an IP, an identified patient. Hey, doc, we're all here so you can fix Tommy and his alcoholism. First of all, I'm not a doctor, but thank you. Second of all, I think there could be more going on here. Let's dive into this. Another contribution is the identification and exploration of internal, developmental, and purposeful interactional patterns actually empowers the family. So much of what happens in family dynamics is outside of our awareness. And the term knowledge is power, that's another term that rings really true with ourselves, and we've seen that with the individual approaches we've learned about, but also with families, that light bulb moment of, that's why we do that. We don't have to do things this way. Maybe there is another way. Knowledge is power. Individuals in the family systems perspective are not scapegoated as bad people. The family perspective does not have an identified patient. Again, the family brings that idea with them. And part of our work is to do the exploration that debunks that idea. There are some limitations and criticisms of the family systems approaches in general. There's an overemphasis on the system that can result in unique characteristics and needs of individuals being overlooked. Oftentimes, families will have individual members who are also receiving treatment, and this can get into an ethical sticky situation when they want you 
to be their individual and their family therapist. That's where having secrets can come into play. And don't tell people I said this in the family group. I just want this between you and me. Ugh, that gets really sticky if you're trying to do both of those things, the individual and family therapy. So if there's someone who does need individual therapy, refer them to a friend. It's the best thing you can do. Practitioners must not assume that the Western models of family are universal and must be culturally competent. Particularly in this area where we live and are receiving our degrees and licenses, we have a lot of Hispanic families in Sonoma County. It would be really easy and also very unethical and negligent of me as a white practitioner to view my Hispanic families in the welfare system through this lens of, well, they hit their kids and that's abuse, so they're bad people. Um, Let's look at some cultural norms and expectations here. Not only did white parents spank their kids for decades and decades and decades, but this is a culturally accepted practice. So rather than condemning them for doing what their culture has told them is good to do, let's offer them a different strategy. Let's not shame them, let's teach. Because them should be part of us, right? Therapists are finding ways to broaden their views of individuation, appropriate gender roles, family life cycles, and extended families. This is work that I think could use some more spotlight in the realm of psychotherapy. We don't talk about family work that often. We're talking about some of these new fancy things like EMDR and all these different biofeedback therapies that we can use which are valid and have a time and place, but so does family work, especially as we as a culture at large are doing more work around addressing colonization and what that has done to us as a nation and to us as people and how we have let it strip strip us of our humanity. That is going to change the way that families see each other, families see other families, and families see their own lineage and heritage. So while we are broadening our views, I would say this is kind of like a small little trickling stream, whereas we kind of need like a big roaring river of um, this being something we're really focusing on in the realm of psychotherapy. All right, to wrap up family systems therapy, let's use a little case vignette and we're going to apply it to some of these um, theories that we've talked about to get a little comparison of how these different approaches would tackle this problem. So here's our family. Bob and Mary, ages 40 and 39, come for help with their 15-year-old daughter, Deborah, whom they report is very defiant especially when it comes to household tasks and keeping her room clean. Bob and Mary say they argue a lot about how to deal with Deborah. They have two older children who are away at college. Here is what Murray Bowen, who's that multi-generational or extended family systems, both of those terms are used for Bowen. He would say, construct a genogram of at least three generations. Identify triangles and repeating patterns around the launching of children. Look for ways Deborah may be the object of a family projection process and or a deflection of marital conflict. 
coach Bob and Mary in their own differentiation processes, assuming this will automatically raise the level of differentiation within the system. May or may not see Deborah in session. Here is what structural work with Salvador Mnuchin would do. Therapist sees at least parents and Deborah. Makes a family map of boundaries and hierarchies. Goal is to empower parents to be appropriately in charge. In session, enactment of attempts to change behavior. Role reversals. Homework assignments. In strategic work. Prescribe the symptom. Example, Bob, Mary, I want you to argue on purpose, by appointment, twice, between now and the next time we meet. Get out your calendars, let's schedule it. And, or, reframe. Mary, congratulations, your daughter is right on schedule for a 15-year-old. You must be doing something right. And Satir which was our experiential communications, also known as the human processing information, would experiment in session with different communication stances, like the blamer, the placator, the distractor, to move towards the more functional leveler stance. Reframe. Educate about family life cycle and adolescent development. Encourage parents to focus on dyadic communication to improve marriage. So those were the more major approaches to family systems therapy. There are others, which again, you'll learn about in that family systems class that you'll have later on. And if you weren't familiar with all of those terms or not fully clear on what some of those interventions were, it's okay. You will get it as you go along. And truthfully, if you sat with it for a moment and picked it apart, you could probably figure out what it is. And that's another key when we are working as clinicians in this field, is that we're thrown terms that we are vaguely familiar with or that we could probably figure out on the fly. And that's a skill for us to carry around because people are going to assume that we all speak the same language, which is not necessarily true. So if those Uh, descriptions were a little bit fuzzy to you. That's why you're here is to learn. So don't stress about it. You will get it as you go along. Well, students, that's a wrap, not only for the asynchronous lectures for this course, but just about a wrap on this course altogether. And just about a wrap on your first semester of graduate school. What a tremendous moment in time. Please take the time to mark this moment, however you choose to see fit. One of the things that my partner and I did to help both of us get through this multi-year process was that we decided to go on a big camping trip because that's our thing um, once I graduated. And at the end of every semester, we would buy a piece of camping gear that we would need for that trip. So there were little markers along the way leading up to this big momentous occasion. So maybe that idea can be workable for you and your family or, you know, find what works for you um, and talk to other people. Get different ideas about maybe how you can create a special moment in the midst of a pandemic and all the other things that 2020 has had to offer us. You have made it through all of them with incredible success so far. So imagine what you can do in the years to come. 
I so look forward to being able to see you all on campus in the future when it's safe and appropriate to do so. Um, when you're in your second and third years and I'm back here teaching theories. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing you all then and looking forward to seeing some of you at the Eco Psychology Experiential. There are still some slots open if you would like to sign up for one of those. Uh, please do so um, so we can keep the group small for the sake of health and safety. Grace and peace to you all as you prepare for our final synchronous class on Thursday and everything that lies ahead for you. Thank you.